If, if you don't mind, I want to take the time that we have. Uh, if you will open up God's word to 2 Kings, it's 2 Kings chapter 6, um, a passage I'm willing to bet uh, you've not heard read from in really any, any context very often. Um, uh, for, for, for some for you Kentucky fans, 2 Kings comes right after 1 Kings. There you go, Roger. I made a U of L joke just for you. It's for you. Hey, Brother Ken, all the time, every time Louisville lost the game, he's like, all right, let's have the Louisville fans in the back stand up, point and laugh. So that's, that's my one Louisville joke um, or Kentucky joke. Um, but uh, uh, 2 Kings chapter 6, we want to read uh, the first seven verses. Uh, the writer of 2 Kings writes on the inspiration of the Holy Spirit. Now the sons of the prophet said to Elisha, See, the place where we dwell under your charge is too small for us. Let's go to the Jordan. Each of us get there a log and let us make a place for us to dwell there. And he answered, go. And one of them said, be pleased to go with your servants. And he answered, I will go. So he went with them. And when they came to the Jordan, they cut down trees. But as one was fell in a log, his axe head fell into the water and he cried out, Alas, my master, it was borrowed. And the man of God said, where did it fall? When he showed him the place, he cut off a stick threw it in there, and made the iron float. And he said, take it up. So he reached out his hand and took it. Let's go and pray. Our Father, we ask, as always, that you would open our hearts, that we would receive your word, our mind, that we would understand it, our eyes, that we would see your glory, and our ears, that we would hear and heed your word, and our mouths, that we would speak the truth of the gospel, beginning to ourselves, to one another in love, and to this lost and dying world around us. May you open our hands and our feet that we will go in obedience to Christ, that we will be transformed by your love. And may I decrease so that you can increase. In the name of your son, we pray. Amen. I remember many moons ago when I was a student minister here that we would quite often, um, it was an easy trip to, to plan and didn't cost us really anything, that we would go camping with the youth. And we went camping where there was a good fishing pond. And so uh, half of us fished all night. Uh, the boys would uh, shoot arrows in the dark at night. I just didn't tell their parents that we were doing that. And uh, uh, I don't know what the girls did. They were never a problem. Uh, I, mean, you know, my, I had to have three eyes on, on the boys. Uh, but I remember we were fishing on this one particular day. It hadn't gotten dark yet. We're just going at it. Everything seems to be doing fine. Some were having more luck than others. And all of a sudden, our world changed. My wife, or maybe we were engaged then, I don't quite remember, but, but she, she got a bite, right? And, and it was, you know, that bite. The bite you dream of. And immediately, she's just yanking and pulling. She, she's he and hauling. I got her. It's a big one, all this sort of stuff. And, and any time men are around women who are fishing, they can't stand if, if, if this woman over here catches the biggest fish, right? What that woman needs is their help. So all of our teenage boys, they, they all rush to her aid as, as the chivalrous gentlemen they are. And they're giving her their mansplaining, all right? They're explaining to her, oh, you really got to pull it. Here, give me the rod. I'll do this and all this sort of stuff. And she won't give up. She just pull it. She's pulling. I'm as redneck as you. I'm just pulling and pulling and pulling. And finally, the line breaks. And that's the end of it. It's all her fault. Because we didn't know this before, but there was one giant catfish. It was the queen of all catfish. And she had it. She just should have given it to one of, the, one of the boys. Then I looked over and one of our teenagers, longtime member of this church, 
He's taken off his shoes. He's taken off his socks. He starts to take off his shirt, and I know exactly what's about to happen. See, what happened was where the line broke on that fishing pole, the bobber was still in the water. And so you could follow the fish everywhere it was going in this pond. And this was the mother of all fish. And I don't know we were having a competition to see who can catch the largest fish so we can throw it right back. He is undressing so he can dive into the pond to catch this whale. Okay? And I had to then say, okay, that's enough, right? It's, 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 uh, we're done fishing for a little while. We need to calm down. It is not worth it. Or at least give me your phone first. I hate to get it ruined, right? Right? I mean, granted, it may have been a big fish. I don't know. But I don't think diving into the pond would have been worth the adventure that it, it would have caused. How much less so diving in to recover an old hammer? You really think about this story here. It is a boring story in the Bible. You think of all the miracles you've ever read in the Bible, whether it be in the Old Testament or Jesus, the apostles in the New, this has to be the worst. A guy is swinging an axe. The axe head falls into the river. He complains. It then floats. He grabs it. The end. That is a terrible story. But I think what we'll find here is the beauty of the gospel and some real application, particularly as we think about 200 years moving forward of gospel faithfulness. Let's begin with the friends in the first, first four verses. And in verse one, we're introduced to the sons of the prophets. I wish we had more time to explore them in some detail. This is the Cliff Notes version, a, a sort of ancient seminary, right? We could call this the Gilgal Baptist Theological Seminary, right? Uh, they, these are basically seminary students or, or, or uh, cemetery students, as, as we like to call them. And, and so it's a type of discipleship in that Elisha would have been the head of this little school and, and he is gathered around him a school of prophets whom he would train, disciple, and send out into apostate Israel. And there is an immediate need here that we're presented in verse 1. The need is, is that the Gilgal Baptist Theological Seminary isn't large enough for the growing number of students attending. And so we should see this as a good thing, Right? Uh, it indicates growth. It, it indicates a, a movement that previous planners could not have predicted. And it indicates increased influence. And perhaps the writer wants us to, to, to believe that despite the cultural, political, and moral malaise of Israel at this time, it is apostate northern Israel, there is an increased interest in the ways of God. And so the plan is put together there in verse 2. The students want to go to the Jordan River, and they want to build for themselves a brand new expanded seminary. Now, what we see here is that these men are clearly humble, right? That, that, that they, they are willing to, to go and to uh, take care of this, and also that they are industrious. And with that comes poverty, Notice here, they're not hiring out the work to build this seminary like, like we might today. We'd raise the funds, we hire a construction crew, and then, and then we, we have a, a move-in day. Rather, what they are doing is they're, they're, they're grabbing whatever tools they have, they're going down by the Jordan River and felling logs, and they're going to build it themselves. 
they are humble, they are industrious, they are poor. And so they invite the president of the Gilgal Baptist Theological Seminary to join them, Elisha. He gives approval for its construction. They invite him to come down to to witness it, and he does precisely that. And they want him to be there with them. They've heard the stories of Elisha and all the great miracles he has done. They know that the Spirit of God is upon him. And so that leads to the frustration here in verse 5. And as as Elisha arrives, one can imagine what it is that he has seen. He is witnessing a swarm of busy bees chopping wood and building this new seminary. This must have been exciting for him. After all, Elisha was possibly a student of this, what we would call a seminary. Because you remember, Elisha uh, was a disciple of a man named Elijah. Hope you don't get those two confused, right? I remember whenever, because uh, uh, we had Elijah whenever we were here, whenever we found out we were having a girl, I joked that we should have a daughter, call her Elisha, but spell it Elisha and just, just confuse everybody. Um, my dad has enough trouble spelling as it is, as do most Kentucky fans. And so, um, and so we, I, I didn't win, win that argument, um, but but. Elisha was a student of Elijah. And you remember the story of Elijah where he goes to, to Mount Carmel. He lays the smack down, right? He calls it a fire from heaven, destroys everything. He wins. Rah, rah, re. You remember what he does immediately after that? He flees for his life. The queen is after him. And he comes on the mountain of God. And you remember what he says? I'm the only one left. I'm the only one left that doesn't worship Baal. This is it. And God has to gently remind him, no, there is a remnant in Israel. Just because you don't see it, just because you feel alone, doesn't mean it's not there. What is Elisha witnessing here? A swarm of busy bees, of young men who have not bowed the knee to Baal. It's an incredible scene that he witnesses. However, one of the students is chopping away at the tree, And an accident happens. In one fell swoop, the head falls off the axe and it drops into the river. Now remember that ancient Israel fits within what historians call the Iron Age. And thus, this axe would have been made of iron. In fact, in the Hebrew, the word for axe head that we translated in English as axe head, in Hebrew is the simple word iron. So a piece of iron shaped in the form of an axe head falls into Uh, The river. And those of you who might be Kentucky fans, you may need to know iron sinks. And so, as it flies off the handle, it goes into the river, it sinks to the bottom. A couple of things we need to note about this. First of all, iron was a rare commodity. Axes are relatively cheap today. I'm willing to bet that somewhere in your house, whenever you moved to your house, you had a hammer that worked well for you for years. Now, you can't find that hammer. You haven't been able to find it for a few decades, but eventually it'll pop up. In the meantime, while you wait for that hammer to suddenly pop up, you went and bought probably two or three more hammers because you've lost some of them too. After all, we, we can lose tools all the time. Ain't that big of a deal? Go down to a hardware st- store. If you're super lazy because you're a millennial like me, you just order it on Amazon. In two days, it'll just be there, right? I mean, th- th- this stuff is cheap. But at this time, it's very different. 
Iron was a particularly rare commodity in Israel. In fact, according to 1 Samuel 13, the Philistines had a type of monopoly on iron. In fact, 1 Samuel tells us that the Israelites had to go into Philistia in order to learn how to shape iron into weapons and tools before they could go out into battle. Thus, not only was it a rare commodity, it was made more rare by the Philistines. Thus, to have an iron axe head would have been very expensive to have. And the second thing we need to see here is that when this man, uh, his, his, his iron axe head sinks, he then explains to Elisha it was borrowed. The Hebrew literally, literally says it was asked. He borrowed it. Now remember, these men are poor. And losing the axe head would have required him to replace this very expensive tool. Whenever we, we, we left Greenup uh, about 13 years ago, we, we, we went to West Kentucky in Breckenridge County. Now, there I pastored a church for, for about six years called Goshen. And, and the cars we were driving here, we took with us, obviously. But those cars were the cars we drove when we were in high school, which meant that now that we were parents and we'd had those, those cars for several years, those used cars just died on us at, pretty much at the same time. The first one died. We thought, well, you know, we can figure it out with one car. About a month later, it was dead. So we went from having two cars to no cars. And we could not afford to just go out and buy another car. And we didn't really know what to do. There was an elderly lady who, who I eventually buried on her, uh, after she turned 100. It was a really sweet lady. It was a neighbor of ours. And she said, look, I have a car that sits in my driveway. I cannot drive it. My, my daughters won't let me drive it. I don't need to be driving it. But it needs to be driven every once in a while. And I was still in seminary. And so, so she says, why don't you just borrow my car for, for a few weeks until you and Amanda figure things out, and, and, and then, then you can bring it back. So that was very uh, generous of her. But every time I got in the car, especially when I had to drive an hour and a half across the timeline to Louisville, all I could think of was, Lord, please do not let me wreck this car. And if I do... Please let me die. Right? <laughs> I mean, I mean uh, you should have heard my wife's prayers, right? I mean, she was in good. Like, like it's just that's a mess, right? Yeah, yeah. I mean, even with insurance and everything else, right? That, that when you borrow something expensive, the last thing you want to do is to ruin it or lose it. But but this guy doesn't have insurance. He he can't do a payment plan. If if he loses this axe head, this very expensive commodity, that would mean one thing for him certain slavery. He would become an indentured servant by which he would work for less than minimum wage in modern lingo to pay the bill back. And it would take decades for him to do that. He's looking at a life of, of servanthood. He would go from a, a seminarian to a slave. And this leads to the fortune in verses 6 to 7. Notice what he does there. Verse 6, the man... Uh, then um, in verse five, he, he says, uh, alas, my master, it was borrowed. And the man of God said, where did it fall? He showed him the place. He cut off a stick, threw it in there and made the iron flow. The panic on the seminary student is immediate, isn't it? Oh, no. My life has just radically changed in an instant in the twinkling of an eye. So he turns to Elisha, whose solution is to grab a stick. This could be a large branch, could be a small stick, could be a tree if you want. And he chucks it into the river. <laughs> I mean, I mean, that's, what do you do with that? Don't worry, 
young seminarian. Let, let me learn you a thing or two about how this works. Get me a stick. We're going to fix this right now, right? I mean, that's a deep river. A little stick isn't going uh, to solve it. And he just chucks it in there. Yet, by the grace of God, that is the means by which the axe head floats. I, I love how the King James puts this. I, I really do. I, I think the poetic language here is beautiful. The man of God said, where fell it? And he showed him the place and he cut down a stick, cast it in thither. And the iron did swim. I love that. I love that. So the man sees the swimming axe, reaches out, takes it, goes back to work. I assume a little farther up away from the river. And that's the end of the story. But what do we do with it? Well, as we said, that when you consider the numerous miracles of the Bible, this is the least impressive of them all. No one is dead. No one is sick. No one is at war. No one's drowning. No one's suffering. No one's demonized. No one's starving. A man lost his tool. All that happens is a man loses his tool and the prophet helps him find it. So what do we do with it? Can I, in the time that remains, give you three things that are worth highlighting about this text? The first is that the ordinary is extraordinary. If you do just a little bit of research on this passage, you're going to notice a common trend. And that is that people read it and they are likewise not impressed. Again, the waters aren't parting. They're not calling down she-bears to maul a bunch of teenagers. By the way, that was the first passage I read the teenagers when I was a 19-year-old youth pastor. I don't, don't know if I would do that again, but it certainly got their attention back, back then. And that was Elisha who did that. And because it's so boring, because it's so dry, you have to spice it up, right? Like, like a good Hollywood movie. Every time they try to tell a, a true story, they have to spice it up a little bit to keep you engaged. And so that's what a lot of people do in this text. There's two ways to spice up the story. One is you can allegorize it. You can find secret Easter eggs, if you will, to, 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 to make it fit something bigger. For example, you could say that what this is is a picture of the old exodus preparing Israel for a new exodus. So King Jerem, who's the evil king of Israel at this time and is a descendant of Ahab, who was a terrible king, is like Pharaoh and the seminarians here are like Israel who are building a tabernacle, if you will, in the wilderness. After all, don't forget that it was Joshua who, who crossed the people through the Jordan River just as Elisha himself crossed through the Jordan River on dry ground. So you see, it's another exodus. Isn't that cool? And you could do this sort of stuff all the time. Or, for example, you can see it connected to a story like Jonah. It's a story of submersion, a story of resurrection. See, just like Jonah. And so you can allegorize the text all you want to. And it certainly makes a more compelling uh, uh, interpretation. Another way you can make the story really pop is to moralize the text. In fact, if, 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 you, if you're bored... You can Google sermons on 2 Kings chapter 6, verses 1 to 7, and I'm willing to bet nearly all of the, the, the sermon uh, titles are going to be called something like How to Sharpen Your Edge, How to Stay Sharp, How Not to Lose Your Edge. Of course, the problem with that sort of moralizing is the, guys, the problem with the guy's axe isn't that it wasn't sharp, it's that it went missing, right? You know? But. 
Whatever it means to stay sharp, I mean, that sounds really important. And so you can moralize the text. The problem is, is this temptation we have to make the ordinary extraordinary. There has to be a deeper meaning here, right? And allegories and moralism are great ways to find deeper meanings. But I want to argue that the simplicity of the text is purposeful. We're supposed to see it as a simple, ordinary, boring story. The story goes, whether not as true, depends on who you read, that Martin Luther, when he was a pastor in Wittenberg, Germany in the 16th century, was asked by one of his members that if he were to discover that the Lord was to return tomorrow, what would he do today? And his answer was, again, quite legendary because it may not have actually happened, but still we, we receive it. He says, I would still plant my apple tree. His point was, is that if he is in the will of God now, why would he change anything if he knew the Lord was coming tomorrow? The point was to be in the will of God. And ordinary things like planting an apple tree is perfectly fine. In fact, I think we could take it farther. That according to the Bible, we see that ordinary obedience is extraordinary in the kingdom of God. It is American bravado that believes that only the extraordinary matters. A large following, published books, wealthy friends, and friends in high places. The Bible, on the other hand, cares about the ordinary. After all, Jesus changed the world, not with academics and the elite, but with fishermen. And although we may not see it, God is glorified and God uses the daily grind of a faithful Christian and a faithful church. This man is is as much part of God's plan and God's work in ancient Israel's life at this time as Elisha is when he raises the widow's sons from the dead. I want you to see that. By swinging an axe at a big, large tree next to the Jordan River, he is as much in the will of God and is as pleasing to God in that simple act of obedience as Elisha is when he confronts kings. Because the ordinary in service of God is extraordinary. Do not mitigate ordinary faithfulness. When you really think about it, isn't that why we are celebrating 200 years this year? 200 years ago, I'm sure you can bust out the minutes. Maybe you can find the oldest bulletin that has yet survived of this church. I don't know. I bet I know exactly what they were doing. They showed up this part of town. They walked in. To this building, they sat down, they sang hymns, they heard a sermon, they prayed, they read the Bible, they encouraged one another, they went home and had fried chicken to the glory of God. Something like that, right? Guess what you will be doing next week? You will be arriving to this building, you will sing songs, you will sit in a pew, you will, you will celebrate the resurrected Savior together, you will worship, you will pray You will open your Bible and God will be equally glorified, whether it's this generation, the last generation or the next. We have heard for 200 years ordinary sermons preached by ordinary pastors to ordinary members engaged in ordinary worship. And the Lord couldn't be more pleased. The ordinary is extraordinary. So I would encourage you, not just as a church, but as individuals, 
Husbands, love your wives. Wives, respect your husbands. Believers, read your Bibles. Disciples, pray regularly. Parents, raise your children in fear and admonition of the Lord. Church, tell others about Jesus. It's nothing new. Nothing profound. You heard that day one when you gave your life to Jesus. Yet that ordinary obedience is extraordinary in the kingdom of God. Quickly, the second thing we need to see here is that desperation is not failure. Put yourself, if you can, in the student's shoes. The panic in his voice is apparent. You can almost see it in his eyes, can't you? As, 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 he, as he rips back to, 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 to fell the log, and he can feel it just fly right off of him. And he turns around, he says, not the river, not the river, not the... Oh, it's in the river. He's going to run over and he sees it sink as fast as it can, like a rock to the bottom. And in an instant, he knows his life is ruined. So he turns to Elisha. He is helpless. He is doomed. Now, we can only do a little bit of speculating here. Maybe he was negligent, right? Now, I'm no carpenter. You wouldn't want me to fix anything that is broken. But I do know that if you have a hammer and axe, before it falls off the handle, you know it's about to fall off the handle, right? I, I, this is pretty straightforward, right? You feel it every time you move it, things getting loose. If I don't do something about it, it's, it's going to fall off. Right? And so, so maybe, surely this guy could tell the signs. Hey, you know, a couple more swings, this thing's going to fly off. And for some reason, he just, he just ignored the signs. I don't know. Maybe he was inexperienced. Perhaps he's the sort of guy who he, he, just, he just wants to help. He's just a good, good old boy. He just wants to help. So he goes out and borrows his friend's axe and begins to chop wood. Carelessness is often a common of the inexperienced. To quote the great theologian Chase Robertson of Duck Dynasty, if you don't know what you're doing... You might as well do it quickly, right? That maybe is what he's doing here, right? I don't know what I'm doing. Got an axe, there's a tree, chop, right? I don't know. Regardless, this is a moment of despair, doubt, and struggle. You can almost see what is going through his mind. You know, maybe, maybe I'm not really cut out for this sort of thing. I got really excited at the end of VBS and gave my life to Jesus. Went off to youth camp. And man, I felt called. And I came up here. And man, I just not called to this. Look around me. Everyone else seems to be doing just fine. Everyone else knows what they're doing. Everyone else's grades is great. Everyone else's life is wonderful. Look at me. Doomed. Life ruined. Maybe we'd be better off without me. See how quickly his failure has led to desperation. But what separates this man from so many Christians today is not that he failed, but that in his failure, he turned immediately to his master. After all, he knew the stories. The dead had been raised, lepers had been cleansed, and bears would follow his every command. Surely he can handle a little bit of iron at the bottom of the river. In the mid-19th century, Charles Spurgeon was the most popular preacher perhaps in the world, certainly in England. 
His church, the Metropolitan Tabernacle, is still standing today and still faithful to the gospel today in, in London. You can still go to it. It's on the bucket list. And, and, and as a young preacher, he, his popularity grew immensely. Thousands of people around London were reading his sermons every week. And so his church wanted to, 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 to offer him the opportunity to speak at a larger venue, an arena, uh, the Royal Surrey Gardens Music Hall, to where more people could come hear him preach at, at, at the one time. But it was like a weekend event. And on the first night, the place is just packed. You couldn't put anyone else in there. And, and in the middle of the service, someone yelled fire. And that caused a stampede. People were trying to escape. And as a result, many were injured and two souls were trampled to death. Well, this led Spurgeon into deep depression. The media just lambasted him as, as it was his fault and his carelessness and his failure, his bravado. It was all his fault. And then he blamed himself on top of that. And, and, and so he sunk deep into shame and deep into guilt and depression where he, he wouldn't come out of his room for weeks. He didn't preach for months. And in fact, you can still to this day read his first sermon. He came back and it was, it was a, a poor, weak man expressing he had nothing to give to his people. He was still struggling with, with the onslaught of, of that night. Yet there was one passage that stuck out to him. As he was working his way through this deep depression, one passage stuck out to him, And he read it over and over and over again. And the iron did swim. He wrote in the sword and the trowel, Beloved reader, what is your desperate case? What heavy matter is in hand? Bring it here. The God of the prophet lives and lives to help his saints. Believe in the Lord of hosts. Approach him, plead in the name of Jesus, and the iron shall swim. You too shall see the finger of God working marvels for his people. According to your faith shall it be unto you. And yet again, the iron shall swim. I, I don't know what may draw you to despair today. Maybe it's a moral failure. Maybe you feel like a disappointment. Maybe you feel you have failed at all that you have sought out to achieve. Maybe it's trying circumstances. I don't know what it is. But please know, if you will turn to your master, the iron will swim. One last point before we leave. Christ is a sweet redeemer. I wish we had more time to do a full survey here, but just for the sake of simplicity, what, what you get in Elisha's miracles is they, they overlap uh, other miracles of, of, of the Bible. Uh, we've already mentioned him crossing the Jordan, mirrors that of Moses crossing the Red Sea, or Joshua taking the Israelites across the Jordan. Very, very essentially the same story. Elisha is the only prophet that feeds a multitude until Jesus does it in the New, New Testament. There's tons of examples of that. So what you get then are parallels between the, the, the old prophets of old and then the ones in the New Testament. You see these patterns developing, and, and, and they're, they're hyperlinks, right? We're to see how they are connected. But even among Elisha's miracles, there is overlap. For example, in chapter 4, Elisha, uh, uh, Elisha uh, raises the widow's son. 
And in that story, is very similar to this story. One is a son, the other is an axe head. And they don't look the same, but they actually are very similar. Because what you have is an impoverished widow whom, when her son is raised, Elijah is redeeming her out of her greater poverty. She has no support group. She has no system, life insurance, social security, anything by which to draw security from. So when her son dies, and her husband's already died, she is left destitute. So by raising her son, Elijah Elisha is redeeming her from certain poverty. So too, when he comes to the seminarian student, he he comes and he redeems him from certain slavery. In fact, in the two texts, we see that the same language is used so that the reader can pick up on these themes. In chapter 4, verse 36, he tells the woman to pick up your son. Here in chapter 6, verse 7, he tells the seminarian to take up your axe. So we would see these hyperlinks to say that the two are related. Thus, we are to see that in Elisha, we see a picture of one who redeems. A redeemer is one who buys a slave for the purpose of setting them free or purchases the debt in order so that they are no longer under its, its weights. Here, Elisha, on two occasions, does both. He redeems one from poverty, the other from slavery. And we are to see here, he is a type of redeemer that is ultimately fulfilled in Christ, who is our redeemer, who who recovers the debt of the poor, and he sets the captives free by assuming it all upon himself at a cross. After all, Jesus was an ordinary man who lived an extraordinary life because he lived ordinary obedience. He died an extraordinary death that would have been ordinary for any other criminal. He was raised, as we worshiped last week, in an extraordinary manner. And the failure that everyone saw upon the cross turned into despair for all of his followers and everyone else until he was raised from the dead. Elisha might be a type of redeemer, but that type of redeemer points to a true and better one. Jesus Christ and him crucified. It is no accident then the early church theologian Origen saw the significance of Elisha picking up a tree. It's the same Hebrew word for stick, branch, and tree. Picking up a tree, a branch, and casting it into the water, into the depths by which the iron did swim. That may be a bit too allegorical for me, but I love where he's going with it. It's by the means of the tree, the man is redeemed. So too is by the means of the cross, the Roman tree, you and I are redeemed. Isn't that what we have sang for 200 years in an ordinary church and an ordinary piece of land with ordinary people and ordinary pastors and ordinary old youth pastors, and ordinary members, and an ordinary church of an extraordinary God? Don't we sing something like, I was sinking deep in sin, far from the peaceful shore, very deeply stained within, sinking to rise no more, but the master of the sea Heard my despairing cry. From the waters lifted me. Now safe am I. Can I add a line to that? I know you're not supposed to do that in the Baptist church to the hymn book. But can I add just this one line to that song? 
And the iron did swim.